Hey, good morning, Life Church. Glad you're here this morning. I uh, hope you felt welcome. Uh, thanks for being with us. I understand the Panthers are playing in London. And thanks for being here instead of at home watching the game. But the good news is I can promise you I will complete as many passes as Cam Newton will today. So, sorry. Sorry. Now that I've ostracized half of you, it's okay. Um, uh, let's, uh, sorry, let me, uh, let's start us in prayer. Father God, we just thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for this, the reminders that we've gotten this morning in worship that, that it is well with our soul and that, that we are put here to praise you and to make, make famous your name. And we just thank you for what you've done for us and what you continue to do for us. We thank you for your grace that's eternal. Uh, we just thank you for loving us when we don't do a great job of loving you most of the time. God, I ask that you would be with us all today, that you would give us what we need, give us those ears to hear the message this morning, Father. I just pray that when we leave this place that we would all be a little closer to you, a little bit more like you, uh, and that we would love Jesus a little bit more than we do right at this very moment. It's in your son's beautiful name we pray, amen. Uh, so this morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13, 13 through 20. So there should be a Bible near you. If you don't have one, of course there's uh, apps for that. I'm going to cover seven or eight verses this morning. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 20. Said, and we also thank God constantly for this, in other words, what I'm about to say, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon, us, upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. For you are our glory and joy. So we, I think this is week four of our study in 1 Thessalonians. And our aim for this study and of this book has been simple. We're trying to point our lives as Christians back to faithfulness. We're, we're called to be faithful as Christians. And the reason... That's the theme of this book is since Paul planted this church in Thessalonica a year or two before this is written, they're doing a pretty good job. They're doing lots of things. They're not having struggles like they do in Ephesus and Philippi. They're really getting a lot of things right. And he's just doing his best to encourage them and to make sure that he kind of gives them some fuel for their fire to keep spreading the gospel throughout the area. Uh, the first two messages in this series, Pastor Matt walked us through how we need to burn some ships in our lives. That there are some things that we hold on to that make it too easy to kind of turn back to our old ways. Where we just need to not worry about those ways and just plow forward for the gospel. And then last week, James Sharp was with us, our pastoral candidate. And he reminded us that we are here to share our lives and ministries or our lives as ministries for the gospel. 
We're here to share those things. So this morning, with kind of the context of everything that's happened thus far in the series and in, in Thessalonica, what I hope to share with us is that we need to be active participants in gospel-centered community. Active participants in this community. And by doing so, the Word can work through us. The Word can work through us. So we're going to camp out in verse 13. I think that's kind of the pivotal verse for this, this section. You're going to hear it a lot in a lot of different ways this morning. So just verse 13 again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So I think to rightly understand this verse, there's a couple key words to it. The first one is this word received. Received. So I've told you before that the English language, it's all we know, most of us, but it doesn't always do a great job at taking the original Greek and giving us the full meaning of what it means. So this word receive means to join to oneself. To join to oneself or to bind to oneself. And Jewish cultures actually understand this a lot better than we do. They have a tradition going thousands of years back where they literally bind um, the scripture and verses to themselves by something called a teflon. Teflon. should be a picture on the screen. So they take this teflon and they put verses or passages of scripture, usually from the Torah, their law, and they literally bind it to their arms or bind it to their heads. And they do this based on some scripture found in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 20, it says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. It sounds to me like they took this binding to yourself or joining to yourself seriously. It sounds to me like they took the word seriously, what they had at that time. You know, in American culture, we don't have traditions like this. The only thing I can kind of compare it to is you can see a lot of tattoos of Scripture. You see it a lot. That's our way of kind of making a, a remembrance of this Scripture, showing that it's important. It's hard not to remember that when you go through the pain of getting a tattoo and when you see it constantly as a reminder. That's kind of how we do that. So received or joining to oneself. The second word I think is really important in this verse is accepted. Accepted. In the verse it says, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And this word accepted means to take with the hand. To take with the hand. And maybe you think, well, of course that's what it means. But it doesn't mean take it and hide it away. It means taking, kind of hold it openly. Take it and hold it openly. In Jesus' own words at the Last Supper in Luke 22, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given them thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Take it and divide it among yourselves. That's what this word accept it means. It means you take it and not hide it, but you take it and divide it. And as you divide it, it multiplies. And I think that's how we're rightly supposed to handle the gospel. That's how we're supposed to handle the word. So in verse 13 again, and we thank God also constantly for this, that when you received it or when you joined it to yourself, 
which you heard from us. You accepted it. You took it to divide it, not as the word of men, but of what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I love how the message paraphrases this verse too. It says, when you got the message of God we preached, you didn't pass it off as just one more human opinion, but you took it to, to heart as God's true word to you, which it is. God himself at work in you believers. God himself at work in you believers. You see, once you take the word and you join it to yourself and you take it in effort of multiplying it and dividing it with others, it's meant to go to work. And in the Greek, this word work, it means work. It means go to work. That's what it means. So this morning, I want to take a few minutes and look at some communities that I think do a really good job of supporting each other and loving each other and taking care of each other and evangelizing others and doing it for life. And the communities I want to share with you and talk about and a little bit of a compare and contrast are gang communities. Gang communities. So before some of you begin writing your strongly worded emails to elders at lifechurchnc.com, stay with me for a few minutes, okay? I think we'll, we'll bring it all together with this will all make sense. I think we will. But as a disclaimer, I just want to say at the beginning, I'm not condoning gangs or gang activity. Anything illegal they do, that's, that's not what this message is about, all right? So I'm not condoning any of that. But I will urge us not to be judgy either. It's real easy to sit in our ivory towers and judge people that are different than us. And I would argue that if many of us were in situations like they were, we would probably make similar choices. So it's, it's tough where they're at. So if you will, lean in, with, lean in with me past the labels this morning. So a lot of what I've learned about gang communities comes from Father Greg Boyle. He's an author of two books. Uh, this is what he looks like here. Um, he is an author of two books, Tattoos on the Heart and Barking to the Choir. And these books are collections of short stories that he's gathered over the last 30 plus years as he's ministered to gang members in Los Angeles. Fantastic books. They are stories that will both are heartwarming and heartbreaking. He, he's dealt with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gang members over the years. And you know, the average person he deals with looks like this. So this is what most of us would consider to be kind of a rough crowd. But this is who he's chosen to live his life with for the last 30 plus years. And his intention for these two books is simple. It's to humanize the gang member. To humanize them. You know, for whatever reason, Americans, and particularly white Americans, are really good at dehumanizing people. You know, we call them gangbangers instead of people who are in gangs. Felons instead of people who have committed a felony. Addicts instead of people who have an addiction. But what if we took it a step further, and instead of just calling them people, we called them sons who are in gangs, because they're somebody's son, or daughters who have an addiction. Or better yet, what if we went all the way back to Genesis, and we called them image bearers, because we're all made in the image of God, right? The Imago Dei. So what if they're image bearers who are in a gang, image bearers who have an addiction, image bearers who've created a, who have committed a felony? What would that do for the way that we minister to and love these people? Doesn't it change your whole perspective? Whether it's that person you struggle with at work, or it's a five-year-old who drives you up the wall, what if you just recognize that that's an image bearer at this moment? And that's hard to do, believe me, I understand. It's very hard to do. But I think it would change the way we view the world and view people and how we love them if we would do that. So now that we're on the same page and we're looking at image bearers, 
who are in a gang. I think we can really learn some things comparing and contrasting with how gang communities function. I think we can learn some things. From a macro level, I think if you replaced gang banging, being in the gang, everything, all the gang activity, with Jesus and the gospel, I think we can, we can learn a lot of valuable tools that they can give us. So first, gang members are committed to their gospel. Gang members are committed to their gospel. Now notice there's a little G here. It's not the gospel. They're committed to their gospel. And their gospel is the gang. It's their life. You don't wake up as a gang member and think, eh, I'm not going to participate in the gang today. Everything you do from when you wake to when you sleep and in between is circled and centered around that gang. The way you dress, the way you live, the way you talk, where you go, where you don't go, who you speak to and who you don't. It's all about the gang. And as a believer, I think that we should approach the gospel that way. It should be an all-invasive, completely consuming thing in our lives. Some of us do a really good job of being proponents of the gospel on a Sunday and not so much some other days of the week. If we're all being honest, I'm honest. Sometimes I'm a little bit better on a Sunday than I am on a Monday through Saturday. But that's because it hasn't completely permeated everything about my being. I've separated the two in ways that we shouldn't, quite frankly, separate them. In Colossians 3 it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, you have died. Christ is your life. That doesn't feel like being able to separate those things anymore to me. I love this quote by Oscar Romero talking about church, because I feel like churches should, should be held to this level of accountability as well. Oscar Romero was a, a Catholic priest in El Salvador in the early 1900s. And he says, A church that does not provoke any crisis, preach a gospel that does not unsettle, proclaim a word of God that does not get under anyone's skin, or a word of God that does not touch the real sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed. What kind of gospel is that? What kind of gospel is that? You see, for whatever reason, we've all heard this, what I think is a lie that God wants first place in your life. And that sounds good. A lot of lies do sound pretty good. God wants first place. It sounds logical. Of course He does. But I don't really think He wants first place. I think He wants all places. Because that's what kings demand. They com demand complete sovereignty. Complete sovereignty. He wants to be the God of your finances, the God of your marriage, the God of your church, the God of your work, the God of your... Everything you can think of, fill in the blank. He wants to be the God of that. He doesn't want first place. He wants all the places. And I feel like as Americans that live in a democracy, sort of, or an oligarchy, depending on who you are and what your theories are, um, we kind of lose, lose some of the context of what sovereignty means. And there's over 2,500 references in the Bible to kingship. Over 2,500. That tells me it's important, Right? So, with 2,500 references, I feel like I don't know anybody in this room that's lived on this earth under the lordship of a king. And my wife and I just went and saw the Downton Abbey movie. Any Downton fans? All females. Except me. I love it. I'll say it. I thought it was great. 
And this entire movie is wrapped up around this one idea. The king is coming. The king is coming. Technically the king and queen. But the king is coming. Everything, their entire world stopped because the king is coming. They're going to change everything they do until the king gets there and while the king is there. And I feel like we can learn from that. The king is coming for us too. And we talk about your kingdom come, but we forget the king is bringing that kingdom. We should approach the gospel that way. It should be all-consuming. Secondly, gang members are committed to each other as believers, and they love each other really well. They love each other really well. You know, the gang defines where they live, how they live, their hierarchy, who you talk to, everything about it. They love their, their gang members, not other gangs, their gang members very well. And I think as a believer, we should be committed to each other and the outside world at a higher level than our non-believing counterparts. We should be committed at a higher level. The church and its believers and Christians should do more for the world than the United Way should. We're called to do that. In 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Or as a message paraphrases it, love as if your life depended on it. Love as if your life depended on it. A quote from Father Boyle, who's the author of those two books we're talking about, it says, if love is the answer, community is the context, and tenderness is the methodology. If love is the answer, community is a setting for this thing, and tenderness is the tool we use tenderness to get it done. Tenderness is the methodology. Thirdly, gang members are committed to taking care of one another. If you're in a gang, they supply all your needs. There are no people that are going to starve to death or go without shelter or clothing inside the gang. They take care of each other. But as a believer, you know, we're commanded over 200 times in the Bible to take care of others, to take care of the poor and needy, to take care and take in the sojourner and the stranger, to take them in. In 1 John 3 it says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love in deed and in truth. Boyle says it this way, We are sent to the margins not to make a difference, but so that the folks on the margins will make us different. Make us different. Another quote I said is that we should smell like sheep. As elders and pastors and leaders, we should smell like sheep. We should be among the flock so much that you can't tell us apart. In Romans 12, it says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And in Acts 2, we're reminded again, I think probably most of you know Acts 2 at this point, but that's where, as a new church of believers, they sold everything they had just to make sure everybody had what they needed. They took care of each other at a different level than what most of our churches do today. Fourthly, gang members are committed to evangelizing and making disciples. Gang members are committed to evangelizing and making disciples. You see, when you're born into a gang community, you have two options. You get in the gang, or you leave the community completely. There's no middle ground. There's no lukewarmness, as said in Revelation 3. You're either in or you're out. 
In 1 Thessalonians 2, just a few verses before um, 13, our primary verse today, it says, But just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So we speak. You see, as a believer, I think we're called to use whatever context we're in and whatever gifts you have to evangelize and disciple others. The reality is, most of the time on a Sunday morning, most of the discipling happens on the other side of that wall, not on this side of this wall. And sadly, I'm not sure a whole, whole lot happens Monday through Saturday as well. We're called to evangelize and disciple others. In Romans 10, it says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. You could put in about any dichotomy in in there in place of Jew and Greek that you wanted. Black and white, Democrat, Republican, whatever. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him on whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We're supposed to speak the gospel. We're supposed to share the gospel. We're supposed to disciple others with it. Fifthly and finally, gang members are committed to a lifelong endeavor regardless of future difficulties. You see, you don't hop in a gang thinking this is just going to make your life rosy from then on. You probably hopped into a gang because you didn't have any other options. Or at least you felt like you didn't. You felt like this was it. Boyle says that gang involvement is about a lethal absence of hope. It's a scary phrase. A lethal absence of hope. No kid is seeking anything when he joins a gang. He's always fleeing something. We see, they get in, they make that choice, and they know it's for life. Regardless of how hard it is, it's for life. But as a believer, we know that Christians, and becoming a Christian is for life too, and this sanctification process is a long process. Just last week, James told us that sanctification happens in a slow cooker, not in a microwave. And that's true. These difficulties you have, this struggle you've got right now, it is there to make you more like Christ. You may not see it, it may not feel like it, it may make you feel like you're completely not like Christ at the moment, but that's why it's there. Sanctification takes time. In Philippians 3 it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to ourselves. We are transformed to become more like Him through a process. That's the goal. We're transformed to be more like Him. So in conclusion, I'm not condoning gangs or gang activity. I'm not saying we should all join a gang or we should start a life church gang. Not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we are called as Christians to be active participants. Active participants in a gospel-centered community. And when we're actively participating in that, the Word can go to work. We should join it to ourselves. We should take it in our hands, ready to divide it with others and multiply it with others. That's what we're called to do. You see, the point of the gang is to make great the name of the gang, to spread its word to the end of their region. And that's our job too. Our job is to make great the name of Jesus. What could He have possibly done for you that He hasn't done? 
He did it all. He came when He didn't have to come. And He died for you. And if you're a believer this morning and you've accepted that, then all I ask is that we, we use it and we live from that this morning. As the band plays and as we get our hearts and minds ready for communion, may you sit introspectively and may you just think, am I committed to this? Am I in the right community? Because community looks like different things. Sometimes it's a church body. Sometimes it's friends. Sometimes it's a life group. Sometimes it's your neighborhood. We need to be committed and active participants in a gospel-centered world.